Please turn in your Bibles to John chapter 8, and we continue in this powerful text that the Lord has given to us, specifically in depiction of the life and ministry of our Savior, Jesus Christ. My hope is that you are enjoying the sanctification that naturally and necessarily comes from an exposure to the person of God, in particular, the the second person of the Godhead, Jesus Christ, by the power of the third person of the Godhead to do that work in you. If you are in Christ, Christ is in you, and in particular, the Spirit of God indwells you. And so there is no greater joy than the absolute fact that the presence of God is with you, in you, always and forever. The Old Testament saint didn't enjoy that privilege. That's not to say that what the Old Testament saint was inadequate. It is simply that in God's providential dispensation, it was his determination that the Old Testament saint would enjoy the collective joy of the assembly of God, the people of God, that the Spirit of God would fall upon particular leaders at particular times, even indwell particular leaders at particular times. In David's psalm of repentance, he pleaded with the Lord for the Spirit of God not to depart from him. One of the great reflections of the depraved condition of Saul's heart, Saul in the Old Testament, was that the Spirit of God in fact did that. The Spirit of God departed from him. Nonetheless, the Lord sent a demon unto Saul. In today's economy, the Lord has blessed every Christian, every regenerate person with the indwelling of the Spirit of God. And the work of the Spirit of God is primarily to conform that person to the image of the Son of God, God the Son. And as we're going through this text together, maybe above all else in my own life, I recognize an increasing need for that work to be done. As I examine my own heart, my ministry, my leadership, my involvement in my family, my involvement in personal relationships, if there's anything that I can say with great confidence with regard to the prevalence of the work that the Lord's doing in my own heart, it's the inadequacies and failures and misgivings, even sin uh, that I see being exposed as I am increasingly exposed to the person of God. The kindness, the grace, the patience, the love, uh, all these things incessantly expressed in the person of Christ by the power of the Spirit of Christ ought to cause each of us to reflect upon our own lives and see where we yet have need for growth. And not just what we would call growth, but more specifically, sanctification. The process of spiritual Christian sanctification not only involves growth, but it involves pruning. I do a little yard work at my house. One of the things I realize is that either where I have done a decent job in certain areas and things are growing quite nicely, and in other areas, I think specifically of a wonderful peach tree that we had years ago. It would produce about six beautiful, wonderful, amazingly sweet peaches about six of them per year. That doesn't seem right. Well, what was going on? Well, I didn't realize that that tree was full of some really bad bugs. And the next year we didn't have any, and I chopped the tree down because it died. If you're not doing that, if that's not the passionate, joyous process of your life to be being pruned, that as you're in the Word, 
uh, privately, personally, and as you're subject to the sound teaching, faithful teaching of the Word, as here recently in the book of John, Jesus indicts the false converts for the fact that they don't understand God, they don't know God, they don't know the Father, they don't receive faithful teaching of God's Word. They hear faithful communication of the truth of God, and the more difficult it gets, the harder the sayings get, the more passionate they are about rejecting it. In order to lay a groundwork here for understanding the distinction, the necessary and very important distinction between what it is to be a believer and what it is to be an unbeliever, I want to read to you Jesus' words, "'Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits.'" What does that mean? Pay attention. Look at their lives. Look at the product. What is the the obvious manifestation of their heart attitudes, their speech, their conduct? What's it resulting in? You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Of course not. Verse 17, so every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. And you know how this goes. The person who says, well, who are you to judge me? Who are you to judge me? Well, I'm the person Jesus is talking to where he's saying, you will recognize them by their fruits. And as I've told you many times, the problem is people confuse the word judge with condemn, and they're not the same term. They're not the same term. This judgment that we are to exercise is simply thinking. It's simply the exercise of your mind. Paying attention to the realities of a person's life. If not, then who do we evangelize? With whom do we engage in the Great Commission, if not with those whom we have judged to be without Christ, even though they say that they are? Last week, in verses 21 through 30 in John 8, I pointed out to you the eternal judgment applied for disbelief in the God-man. Again, he says to them, I'm going away and you will seek me and you will die in your sin. In John 7, Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer and then I'm going to him who sent me. You will seek me and you will not find me where I am. You cannot come. There are those for whom it's too late. There are those for whom it's too late. You say, well, how do we determine that? We don't. We don't. We just know that it's a scary reality. You can't do that. That's not the idea. The idea is that it should scare us. It should scare them. It should strike fear in our hearts that there are those for whom it's too late. But we ought never to minimize our love for people and somehow feel that we can determine who that is. You can't. There's no way for you to do that. You might wonder about a false teacher. 
you know, a Kenneth Copeland or a Joel Osteen, somebody who has faithfully been committed to heresy for decades. You might wonder that, but you can't know that God wouldn't save Joel Osteen. You can't know that. And so we ought never to give up on the hope that while there is breath, there is the possibility for God to redeem someone. He can redeem anyone. Verse 22 last week, will he kill himself, they say? What does he mean? See, they continue to display this ignorance, this spiritual inability to know what's going on. When he says, where I am going, you cannot come, what does he mean? Is he going to go away and take his own life? Verse 23, he said to them, you are from below, I'm from above. You're of this world, I'm, I'm not of this world. So there's a clear distinction. Jesus is not of this world. Believers are shaped into that reality that they are no longer of this world. So the things of the Lord, they're shedding off. You know that person who professes to know Christ but revels in things of the world? Be loving enough to pray for that person if you have opportunity to, to draw attention to that. John 17, 14, I've given them your word. And the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. We'll talk about this a little bit more in a bit. But in familial relationships, so often this is utterly neglected. You know, because you've got to live with people. They live down the hall. And so you're not willing to address their passionate, intrinsic, interwoven dependence upon things of the world. Got to eat breakfast with that person tomorrow. I better not bring it up. It's not loving. So the question then, the real problem then, becomes at least for that which you can and must address, it's not them, it's you. How is it that you've become so desensitized to this family member that you say you love and probably do, how is it that you've become so desensitized that you won't acknowledge the fact that they're reveling in the swamp of the world? You've got to be doing a self-examination. Verse 24 from last week, I told you that you would die in your sins for unless you believe that I am he. That's ego me. It's the Septuagint's translation of Yahweh, I am, the eternal one. Unless you believe that I am the eternal one, you will die in your sins. You see, that's a hurdle. That's a spiritual mark of the believer and only the believer that he rests in the deity of Christ. And as I've said a number of times, maybe the light's starting to come on for you. You know? Maybe you're saying, I never really believed that you had to believe in the deity of Jesus to be a Christian. What ought to be happening if you're responding to truth faithfully and humbly is you're saying, well, that explains why I have no spiritual victory. I'm not a Christian. Thought I was. This is the problem. You ought to be rejoicing, you know, not responding to that with offense. Well, how dare he say that? No, you ought to be thanking the Lord that you're sitting in a situation where it has become crystal clear. Now listen, it's no more clear to anyone in this room than it was to the Pharisees that rejected it. Do you understand that? They understood exactly what he was saying, but they repeatedly rejected it, and they became desensitized. And yes, they would forget it from day to day, and he would repeat it time and time again. 
But the issue was they were rejecting this doctrine. Verse 25, so they said to him, who are you? Who are you? Jesus said to them, just what I have been telling you from the beginning, since the beginning of my ministry two and a half years ago. I have much to say about you and much to judge. There's much about which you need to be judged. But he who sent me is true, and I declare to the world that I have heard from him. They did not understand that he had been speaking to them about the Father. And if you read through John 5, just on a cursory level, you have to think, were they sleeping? Repeatedly, he says, I am from the Father. The Father has sent me. I come not to do my own will, but the Father's will. John 5, verse 40, you search the Scriptures. This is the problem. You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And you would say, well, wait a minute, that's good so far, right? You think that in the Scriptures you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. You see the problem? They're rejecting. What are they primarily rejecting? Not just the person of Jesus, oh, we don't like you. They're rejecting his deity. They're also rejecting his sovereign grace, but they're rejecting his deity. So he says, you think you've got eternal life in the scriptures, but the fact is the scriptures are about me. The scriptures have made it clear that I am, in fact, God in eternity past, and you reject that. You search the scriptures with a bad heart, with a corrupt lens. They bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. That's the problem. That's why they don't understand. That's why they reject this basic truth. John 6, 63, it is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. Down in verse 66, after this, many of his disciples, many of whom? Many of his disciples, what do they do? They turned back and no longer walked with him. That's a disciple. That's a false disciple. And Jesus makes it clear he's not talking about the 12, except one of the 12, right? Well, point two last week, after we looked at the judgment, this eternal judgment applied for disbelief in the God-man, we looked at eternal knowledge imparted with evidence of the God-man. So what you see happening here is a mental assent, a willingness to acknowledge the deity of Christ, and so they believe in him, the text says. So Jesus said to them, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. Verse 30, as he was saying these things, many believed in him. And this is that fulcrum, that substantial point of interchange between last week's text and this week's text. It's critical. Many believed in him. What does that look like and what does it mean? I mean, if you were reading through John the first time and you'd really been focusing and subjecting yourself to the truth of what's going on and you see this constant resistance and this false conversion, the Pharisees pretending to 
know God, stating that God is our Father. Who are you? And you see this. You get to this verse 30. As he was saying these things, many believed in him. You may have been rejoicing. You know, maybe you've experienced this in an evangelistic effort. You see the change in somebody's speech and their conduct. And they're saying, I believe it. Jesus is God. And over this exact issue, James says, demons believed. How often do we misuse that passage in James? Even the demons believe. What is James talking about? He's talking about God being the one true God. Even the demons believe that, and they shudder. But they're still demons. This is exactly what's going on here. You've got a substantial group of people, the Pharisees, the religious leaders, the false converts who are leading others into false conversion, and there's a significant number of them. Many believed in him. So they're convinced at this juncture. He's from heaven. He's the bread of life from heaven. Despite having this eternal knowledge, this is the kind of belief that provides an appearance of salvation without that salvation. should remind you of the parable of the soils. The seed goes down develops no root, and yet there's a, there's a blossom. There's an appearance of life. You know? Some, there's a change. There's some activity going on. It looks good. Now, this is rampant in the false church, but that's not what we're looking at here. We're looking at those who had heard the teaching of Jesus. They're listening to sound teaching, so it's not the failure of the teacher in this case. I think we can say that in a a true, faithful church, there are going to be those who hear sound teaching and they're going to respond well to it. Oh, I think I get it. And the result, though, is that there's temporary appearance of real life. Turn with me to chapter 8, verse 31. John 8, 31. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. In our text today, we'll see that when Jesus sets a sinner free from his sin, his life is characterized by that freedom in discipleship so that we will lead people to Jesus. Point number one, I want you to see the false conversion displayed in slavery to sin and rejection of his word. I'll go ahead and tell you point two. Of course, you have it there in your bulletin because I want you from the beginning to see the contrast and what's going on. Jesus goes back and forth between these two realities. Point two, I want you to see true conversion displayed in freedom from sin and abiding in his word. There's this certain contrast between believers and unbelievers. And many false believers who want to continue in their deception will pretend, point two. That's what makes them a false convert. They feign true conversion, and yet ultimately the reality is going to be exposed. 
Look at verse 31. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And then verse 33, and this is really where we start with our exposition, they answered him, we are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, Everyone who practiced sin is a slave to sin. Turn to Romans 6. You might have guessed that I would say that. Turn to Romans 6, verse 1. After Paul in Romans 5 <clears throat> has explained the grace that is poured onto the believer in a flood-like fashion, such that, the, listen, the more he sins, the more what he gets? Grace. That is a concrete fundamental Christian reality. I had a very brief but very encouraging discussion with my dear brother Steve Burton this morning. And I acknowledged to him that during this last week, in my acknowledgement of my own sin, I found myself pridefully wanting to persuade the person against whom I sinned that I was so sorry, which was true, and I want that person to know that, right? When you're really, really remorseful for your sin, you want people to believe that, not just because you want them to believe it, but because it's true. And at times, and I found myself, I found this to be true of myself this week, I was longing for that to happen in my pride, that in my pride, my greater desire was that they would be equally convinced that now I'm performing better. What I ought to be doing is just clinging to the cross. You know, acknowledging that what Christ did on the cross was exactly enough to atone for every ounce of my sins, no matter what it was, whether it's speech or conduct or even the condition of my heart throughout my earthly life. What Christ accomplished fully covered it. His death atoned for all my sin. That's where I ought to rest. I mean, yeah, you want to say to people, look, I'm really sorry. Please forgive me. But let our focus be the accomplishment of Christ on the cross because that's what results in his glory and your sanctification, not your ability and willingness to say, you know what, I, sorry for how I acted yesterday. That wasn't really me. Today I'm in my right mind. The fact is it was you. I would encourage you to never say, you know, I said things the other day that I didn't mean. You did mean them, and it was you. It certainly looked like you. You did mean them. You might be saying, no, I really didn't. Yes, you did. You wouldn't have said them. What happened was you were so angry, you were so sinfully saturated with yourself. You said things that you shouldn't have said, but you were exposing the condition of your heart in the moment. And then five minutes later, or two weeks later, or whatever it took you know, for you to submit and subject yourself to the work of the Spirit of God and the kindness of believers to come alongside you, whatever it took, what happened was you acknowledged that it was wrong thinking. But you did mean it. Don't ever cover your sin and therefore eliminate Christ's covering of that sin. You say, I can't eliminate Christ's covering of sin, but you can sure act like it. What you cover he will uncover. But what you uncover, he will cover. That's how we ought to think about our sin. Here in Romans 6, 
Paul says, what shall we say then in light of that flood of grace? What shall we say? Are we to continue in that sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Death to what? Death to sin. Do you not know that? Paul says. Verse 4. We were buried therefore with him by baptism into his death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Listen, if you're struggling with how to answer that question in our membership application, just quote this passage. I mean, mean it when you do it. But this is the issue. This is the issue. This is what it comes down to. This is what we're looking for. You say, I don't know what they're looking for, these questions. Well, we try to be pretty clear with it. We're looking at the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And Paul goes on to give further explanation of that, and this is where we get that question. Verse 5, For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. There you have it. The life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. That's the gospel. That's the gospel. Is that where your hope is? It's not unusual for someone to be significantly faithful to the gospel and leave out the resurrection. And then you don't have the gospel. But they've done a wonderful, amazing job of explaining the atonement. But if you leave out the resurrection, you don't have a Christian testimony. Why? Because it's the resurrection that leads to newness of life, verse 4. It's the resurrection. What does that mean? It's the power of God to resurrect the dead unto new life as displayed not only in Lazarus physically, but in Jesus spiritually. Lazarus just pre-illustrated that, or Jesus did in resurrecting Lazarus. Verse 6 in Romans 6. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. And he gets really practical. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. This is reflected 
in a person's life who, is, who has actually enjoyed this reality, having been brought from death to life, in wanting his life to be on display. He doesn't live in the dark. He doesn't live behind closed doors. He doesn't refuse to engage in things that are only reserved for other people. He's willing to subject himself to the truth of what God has designed for him in his particular place in life. And he wants scrutiny. He loves it because he's literally got nothing to hide. It doesn't mean that he stands in front of the world and puts his whole life on video on display. But it does mean that those with whom he operates as a Christian have a close watch on his life because he has a close watch on their life. Over time, as you are involved in a local church, as a member, as a faithful participant, there are going to be times where you question whether or not it's the right local church. Or maybe it's some sort of Christian organization. Let me give you the singular criterion by which the process of determining that should start. It is the degree to which the leadership of the church is held to the same standard as every member. So at the point where you can confidently determine that the leadership is held to a different standard, or maybe is not held to a standard at all, that's how it so frequently goes. There's no standard for him. He's the guy, right? We can't test him. We might find out things that we don't like, and then what are we going to do? Then who are we going to follow? And the church is going to fall apart. Many of you are aware, and I've mentioned it, uh, the situation with Art Azurdia, uh, who recently has been caught in his sin of adultery, sins from several years ago that he hadn't confessed, and now recently was caught again. Many of you may have read the letter that he wrote. It's a very good letter. But let me tell you something. In my opinion, the great mistake this man is making is leaving his local church. You say, well, how's that going to go? That never goes well if a pastor falls and he stays at that church. I'm not really concerned about whether or not it's ever gone well. I'm concerned about the fact that the man's soul needs those who know him. What church can he go to and plug into and really get the assessment he needs? Say, well, now the whole world knows what happened. Yeah, but they don't really know him. Now, I could be wrong about that. It could be for extenuating circumstances that it's best for him to leave and go to a different church. I have no problem with that possibility. But what I am concerned about is that he has written a very good letter. Here's my real problem. It's not with Artaxerdia. It's with so many pastors, and I'm not just talking about Christians. I'm talking about pastors who are falling all over themselves saying, wow, look at his repentance. And of course, what we ought to be thinking is we don't know that. This guy's written a lot of good sermons, a lot of good letters over the years. It shouldn't surprise us at all that he understands what biblical repentance looks like and that he would put it in writing and that he would send it out in an open letter for the whole world to see. That shouldn't surprise us at all. We shouldn't be saying, wow, this is awesome. We should say it's a good letter. It is a good letter. But what we ought to be thinking is time will tell. Why? 
because he just got caught. And my heart breaks for the church members in those churches where pastors are saying, friends, this is what repentance looks like. Could be, but we don't know. Let's read that letter five years from now. How about that? And ask, what's happened since then? Proverbs 5, 21 to 23, so richly powerful, as the Proverbs always are. For a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all his paths. The iniquities of the wicked ensnare him, and he is held fast in the cords of his sin. He dies for lack of discipline. And because of his great folly, he is led astray. So he's entangled in the cords of his sin. It's the same thing as being caught in your sins in Galatians 6. You who are gentle, restore such a one. We're to bear one another's burdens. This is the person for whom we ought to be willing to bear his or her burdens. You know, if he's willing to enjoy and receive our help. But he's entangled. And that's what uh, Paul means in Galatians 6 with the word caught. It's not like, oh, we caught you. It's not that. It's that he's entangled. He's caught. He's, he, nothing he can do about it, essentially, except ask for help. And so the person about whom Proverbs 5 here would be true is the person who needs scrutiny. He is displaying a false conversion in his slavery to sin. also revealed in his rejection of the word. And many times a rejection of the word is a willingness to receive it. There's a willingness to receive God's word on your own terms. You've seen this in people, right? You see it on TBN. If you watch it, by the way, don't. (laughs) But you see this willingness to take the word and use it for your own purposes. Many times it's a self-righteous legalistic effort to punish other people with certain words from the Bible. So false conversion is displayed in slavery to sin and rejection of his word. But rejection of his word looks different for different people. And in the false convert, it never looks like rejection. It looks like selective Submission. It's a willingness to take the word of God and twist it. Use it to justify a certain lifestyle. And as you know, not just in in the Gospel of John, but in particular in 1 John, the Apostle John makes it clear that there are those who walk in the light and there are those that walk in the darkness. And those who walk in the darkness occasionally expose themselves to the light. Why? So they can come out and say, hey, look, I'm walking in the light. That's why. And yet they go back to the darkness where they're comfortable. And they occasionally step into the light so they can salve their conscience. That person wants nothing of personal scrutiny by himself nor anyone else. He want people to know what his life is really like. John 5, 37, And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. 
See, that describes those who reject his word. And yet they search the scriptures and think they have eternal life in them. Well, point number two, point number two, I want you to see that true conversion is displayed in freedom from sin and abiding in his word. Uh, Back to verse 31. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, Now, this is where the stark reality steps in that those who believed in him, that's how John says it back in verse 30, those who believed in him, believed in him in what we would call a non-salvific way. If you abide in my word. Let's talk about abide. Say, well, abide means to live. You're right. But that's more of a picturesque way to say it. The term meno really means remain or stay. It means to wait. Yes, it means dwell and live, but it means to endure. So there's a clutching, there's a hanging on. I was a defensive lineman, and um, during those days in my life, there was nothing that brought me greater joy than clutching a quarterback as the ball dribbled away and somebody else picked it up and ran it in for a touchdown. But that's what I did. I tackled quarterbacks. I ate them for lunch. I can, reminiscing of those days, tell you that never once did a quarterback escape my clutches. That's what I practiced on. I worked on it. It was um, just a delight. And then to lay on top of him, my face, looking down at his, and just laugh as loud as I could. Because that was my moment, right? I mean, other than that, he's throwing the ball and making touchdowns. He gets all the glory, but it's my time, pal. (laughs) And that clutching is what this is, to remain, to cling, to wait and hang on, that there's no release. I had a friend, he was a good friend. He's a good guy. He was a faithful believer and He struggled with sin, as all Christians do, and he was big and built. He was a big, thick guy, and I called him Mr. Clean. Shiny bald, kind of looked like the guy. You know, if he had the earring, maybe you thought it was him. And he would would jokingly, every now and then, when he and I would disagree on something, say, can we stop being Christians for five minutes? (laughs) He was joking, but there are times in maybe lots of people's lives where they would do that. Let me step outside of Christendom for a moment and do what I really want. A believer might be tempted to do that, but he hates that about himself. And he would never look back on that a substantial amount of time later and justify it with things like, well, you know, yes, I did this, but you provoked me. Or, you know, sorry for how I acted, that wasn't me. He would say, that is me, and I need sanctification, need refinement. I need to rest more faithfully in the atonement. But for those who are truly converted and actually display freedom from sin, they abide in his word. John 17, 17, where Jesus prays this prayer, is directly and certainly applied to them. If you're in Christ, Jesus is interceding for you right now. Right now. And this public prayer that he prayed in John 17, 
is the nature of that prayer. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I sanctify myself that they may also be sanctified in truth. Romans 6.15 tells a different story from Romans 6, 1 through 14. It's the transfer, it's the exchange, it's the change of ownership. Slavery unto righteousness now purchased from slavery unto sin. No longer slavery unto Satan, but slavery unto God. What then, verse 15, Romans 6, what then? Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to sin, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? See, that's the sanctifying work. Sin that leads to death is the antithesis of that sanctification, and then obedience, which leads to righteousness. See that? That's the sanctification. You say, I don't understand why I still struggle with this sin. Be serious. Be serious about the amount of time you spend in the Word. Be serious about how much effort you're deliberately making to attack that sin before you tell someone, I don't understand why I still struggle in this area. I promise you, you can trace it back to spiritual laziness in that area, in the Word. It's a promise. Verse 17. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed and having been set free from sin have become slaves of righteousness. See, that's the reality of the Christian life. The reality of the false convert. He has an affinity for the word. He even sort of loves Jesus. He's even willing at times to tell people what they need to hear, and it's actually reflective of the truth of God's word. But he doesn't himself remain, he doesn't clutch God's word. Not really. Back to our text in John 8. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. The slave doesn't experience the benefits of sonship. He's under the mastery or the ownership of the homeowner, the master. But the son... Right, The one who was a slave and became a son, he's been transferred from that slavery to sin unto sonship where he enjoys the benefits, and the benefits are obvious. And people looking on see those benefits. In our culture, and especially in this culture, when a wealthy man died, and now they see his son enjoying all the benefits of his riches, even today, same, you say, oh, Bobby got a nice inheritance. He was a son. That's the idea. 
just a cultural reality. So if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. In works. In deeds. The reality of your life. What you do displays that freedom. Not Romans 14, liberty. But that Romans 14 liberty is rooted in this liberty, in this freedom. No longer do you live a hidden life because you have nothing to hide. You want people to know the truth about your life, not because it's clean, but because you know that exposing your life produces cleanness. That the Lord will use faithful believers in your life to see you sanctified and cleansed and strengthened. So how do we apply this? How shall we think about this, apply it, and hope to see people we love come to the saving knowledge saving belief in Jesus. In John 8, the resurrection of Christ had not yet taken place. In our text, Jesus hadn't died yet. So when we talk about a commitment to the gospel, we're talking about something that was more essentially and completely exposed in history and in time and in the record of the scripture. There was no church yet. To abide in his word would not have included the one another's. These one another's were given to us by him through his disciple apostles. So living in an entirely different dispensation of time and historical theology, how do we apply this eternal and eternally life-altering truth? Ephesians 4, verse 11. He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherd teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. You say, well, do we have apostles and prophets? No, but initially the church did. Ephesians 2 verse 20 tells us that they were used for the foundation of the church, and that era expired. There are no apostles post the apostles of the first century. The term prophet here is used with regard to those who disseminated truth in its origin. Some would refer to a Bible teacher as a prophet, meaning that he tells forth truth, doesn't foretell truth. That's okay. I wouldn't personally do that. But the fact is, the prophets and the apostles played their role. Now we have evangelists and shepherd teachers. What do they do? They equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love. We are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. You can specifically apply that to the membership of your local church. Every member. You say, what about those who are kind of hanging around, coming, visiting for a while, but not yet members? 
We don't know. We can't know. There's no way to know. But those who involve themselves in faithfulness to Christ, faithful membership in his body, these are the ones that we know are regenerate. These are the ones that we know display true conversion in discipleship. That's what it looks like. That's the only pattern we see in the New Testament. It's discipleship, pouring your life into others in the context of the local church and being poured into by others in the context of the local church. And if that violates your personal theology of your own life, I strongly urge you to rethink that and recognize the strong possibility that you've been influenced by really bad teaching or maybe no teaching at all. But you can't deny the reality that true discipleship, true regenerate Christianity is formed and displayed in the context of personal, long-term relationships. Not just an occasional cup of coffee here or there. In Ephesians 2, verse 1, Paul says, You were dead. You were dead. He's speaking to believers. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. I want you to see the contrast in greater form. Turn with me for a moment to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. We'll finish with this. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. As I read this in preparation for this morning, my heart was wrenched. This is the reality. Now listen, not just of the false prophet, okay? Watch closely as to what Paul is saying here to you and me. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way. For that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And you know what is restraining him now so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill 
with the breath of his mouth and bring to knowledge by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refused to love the truth and so be saved. So while he's dealing with the reality that the lawless one will one day when Jesus returns be destroyed, Jesus himself will kill him. The warning is not for the lawless one. The warning for those who would be deceived by him, and he says in verse 10, with all wicked deception for those who are perishing. Why? Because they refused to love the truth and so be saved. They refused to love the truth and so be saved. Whose fault is it? It's theirs. The false convert who loves and hates the word of God, he particularly determines what he will believe and what he will disdain. It's his fault. He refused to come to the truth and so be saved. And our hearts should be jolted by Paul's word where he says, therefore God sends them a strong delusion. He sends them a strong delusion in the same way uh, that he sent Paul a demon, except that the demon was useful to Paul for his sanctification, and he thanked the Lord ultimately, having requested that it be removed three times, he ultimately determined in the midst of being attacked by a demon, God's grace is sufficient for me. And yet the person who rejects God's word, experiencing this delusion, continues to ruminate in false teaching because it makes him feel better about himself and his hatred for the truth. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth had pleasure in unrighteousness. Verse 13, but, and this is the mandate for you and me, but, we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. Every good work and word, exalting the Savior, equipping the saints, and evangelizing the lost. There is a difference between what it is to be a believer and what it is to be an unbeliever. And be certain, the person who hears this truth and disdains it, he scoffs at it, that's the very person who you most need to love by grace and speak the truth in love to him. Father, we rejoice in the power of your word. We thank you for the clear reality in life that we are all known by our fruits 
And we'd ask that you'd help us to nurture godly fruit, likeness to Christ, the putting off of sin, a devotion to the one another, a willingness to serve one another, bear one another's burdens, pray for one another, eat with one another, strengthen one another, where necessary, rebuke one another, that we would rest in the power of the person and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.